So welcome to the Ex-Religious Support Network. Our aim is to provide a safe space for people who have left or are thinking of leaving their religion. To find us on Meetup, simply search for Ex-Religious Support Network. On Facebook, search for Ex-Religious Discussion Group. My name is Les Allen and I'm the group facilitator. This is the third session in a series of Q&A sessions in which we explore what it's like to think and walk in someone else's shoes. You've given up on your mission of pleasing the divine being and saving others. So what do you believe now? How do you live? And what do you care about? Out there, there is a smorgasbord of worldviews and stances to choose from. Our special guest today is Karen Robinson. Karen describes herself as a pantheist. A little about Karen. She is a New Zealander who studied at the University of Waikato, or Waikato. Waikato. Thank you very much, Karen. <laughs> um, and at the University of New South Wales. Karen has a degree in teaching, a master's in environmental management, and a graduate certificate in developmental trauma. She now lives in Wollongong, New South Wales. Karen is a senior advisor with the Australian Child Childhood Foundation, providing consultation and training in developmental trauma due to neglect, abuse, and domestic violence. She has been a self-confessed tree hugger and greenie all her life. Please welcome Karen. Thank you. So to get started, Karen, let me ask you three initial questions. Um, the first one is, can you say briefly what pantheism is? And I believe uh, you call yourself a scientific pantheist. So you could probably sum it up in, in the short phrase, uh, nature is my God. And really depending on who you speak to, um, you're going to have slightly different um, viewpoints. So as a scientific pantheist, I'm uh, obviously more rooted in the idea of um, uh, the understanding around science and what we understand through science. Whereas uh, some pantheists might uh, feel a spiritual sense um, in nature and in, in living beings. Um, not so much a God, but just a, a sort of a sense of spirituality in those living beings. So um, for me, pantheism uh, really is, we define it as a deep reverence for the universe and for nature, and that humans are just part of that, um, uh, that we're all connected, and there is nothing more worthy um, of, of that deep reverence than, than nature and the universe that we live in. Mm, great. Thanks, Karen. Um, um, and I'm wondering, how did you hear about pantheism? How did you get involved in the movement? Um, <laughs> it was funny. My, my parents actually sort of said to me oh, a number of years ago, oh, I think you're a bit of a pantheist. And I think I was sort of in my late 20s and I was just like, yeah, whatever, because I was busy doing what 20-year-olds do is travel and, and socialise and not really sort of thinking much about the deeper, deeper meaning of life. Um, but somewhere along the line, um, when I got through that phase and I kept chatting to, to my dad um, and I visited home one time and he had this, this book, um, which is the, the Bible of, of pantheists, really, um, and had a bit of a, a read because he said, you might, you might find this interesting. And sure enough, uh, when I read it, I was just like, yeah, that's, that sort of sums, sums me up um, nicely. So it was really through uh, my dad that, that I came to, to realise that I was a, was a pantheist. Um, how did you get involved in the movement? Yeah, so it's, it's really through my dad and, and my parents would always uh, bring people together for events like the changing in the seasons um, and very old pagan traditions, really. But um, interestingly enough, and we can explore this later through questions, but 
um, because pantheism is a lot about um, revering nature, um, we obviously also are aware of the changing of the seasons and traditionally what that would mean for people. Um, and so they would bring people together for traditional um, solstice gatherings and things like that. So that was really watching them and just a really lovely way that they brought people, people together to celebrate uh, nature and to celebrate uh, life and each other. And um, that was sort of how I saw my involvement kind of blossom. Reading that book, it really gelled with you. Can, can I please ask you to hold that book up again? Because um, some of us have, have missed it. It's called Pantheism, Elements of Pantheism. And who is it by? So Paul Harrison, and he runs the uh, Pantheist um, Facebook page. Right, the Australian uh, one. He's helped set that up. Right. Um, and we, I'm one of the moderators. So he's uh, American and really sort of pulled together this um, as a reference point because interestingly enough, um, although pantheism and the idea of pantheism has been around for a very long time and only got the name pantheism in 1705, um, it's never really sort of been brought together in, in, a, in a book, in a document. Mm. So that's sort of the go-to really if you want to know more. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, so with the book, uh, what was it that you saw in the book? What was it that it attracted you to the pantheist way of life? Um, it was just interesting because, and, and I've noted that this is what happens a lot of the time, because um, I suspect that people are pantheists. I meet a lot of people and I think, oh, I think you might be pantheist. Um, but, you know, some people don't like labels. They don't, they don't need a label to put on their beliefs. Um, and I guess I was probably like that too. I was quite clear about how I felt, but I didn't feel um, a, a great need to find a label for it. Um, but when Dad suggested I have a bit of a flick through it, and as I was reading, I was just like, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. Yes, that's me. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, there you go. Like, uh, it, apparently um, I'm a pantheist because everything that I, I, the view that I have of the world and how I feel about nature and uh, it, it's all summed up um, under, under the one umbrella of pantheism. So it just sort of, it brought a name to what I already knew that I uh, felt and believed in mm, the way I saw things. Oh, great. Well, that's really a great introduction. So I'll, look, I'll open it up to the floor, open it up to um, our participants now to ask Karen any question. If you'd like to unmute Bernie. I'm wondering, uh, I did a, district, uh, a master's thesis on American pantheism. Uh, and in, that, in my analysis of American pantheism, uh, I also self-identify as a pantheist myself. Um, I divided pantheism into uh, the scientific pantheist. Some people would call it naturalistic pantheists, and the spiritualized uh, pantheists. Uh, that you know, some of them will embrace the term pantheist, but uh, I'm also a religion scholar, and so I would look at those folks and say that they are. Uh, you know, pretty new age in their orientation. You know, it is not a strictly naturalistic scientific orientation. Uh, and on Facebook, there is this huge, you know, it has like 20,000 members, I think, uh, pantheism uh, group uh, out of uh, Venice Beach, California, uh, one of the founders. And uh, in terms of just getting a huge array of folks, that travel under this banner of pantheism. Actually, I find the scientific pantheists kind of a minority in that group. And I'm wondering uh, down in Australia and uh, Australian pantheists, do you have much contact with what I'll call the new age flavor of pantheism? Or do you manage to con you know, confine yourself uh, just to the scientific pantheists? Yeah, there's not a lot of, um, because the Facebook group I belong to is the Scientific Pantheist, 
Um, and so we're we're all pretty much grounded in in that that sort of side of things. Um, and really, in Australia, it's not it's not hugely well known. And so there's not actually a great deal of people, even if I did stumble across somebody that was of the, the you know, the more spiritual side of um, pantheism. So that, I, I mean, I literally am the only self-declared pantheist on the, the scientific pantheist Facebook group for Australia. Um, so I'm rattling around here um, by myself. And I say that sort of a little bit, tongue-in-cheek because as I said you know I think that there are a lot of people that identify um not identify a lot of people are on the same wavelength and would probably actually tick off all the things that pantheists see and and feel and perceive but don't necessarily call themselves pantheists um so no we're not tripping over you know a lot of the the more spiritual pantheists I'm not tripping okay. over any pantheists, quite frankly, around here. <laughs> uh, you talked about people that uh, you know don't necessarily take on the label, uh, but I've, I've encountered uh, over the 40 years that I have called myself a pantheist, I'll describe it, uh, and they'll go, oh my goodness, I'm a pantheist. That's exactly what they do, yeah. <laughs> I, I had no idea there was a word for what I was. <laughs> so, you know, the, there's those who, you know, just have this aversion to labels. Uh, but then there's also those that say, good, I, I, now, I now know what I to call yeah. myself. It's been, uh, a, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, I've found that too, is that I'm, I'm a bit tentative when I'm talking to somebody and then I might sort of say, oh, you know, it sounds in line with, with pantheism because some people sort of um, feel like you might be trying to bring them over to the dark side into, um, you know, into, into a cult or something. Um, because I, I think that some people feel that we dance around trees and, 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 right. and you know, there's shades of that. But um, it's interesting because some people sort of will say, oh, I didn't realise that, that there was a name for it. And they're sort of quite happy. And others will go, oh, I, didn't, I had no idea that I was... Um, uh, a pantheist and others will go they'll just sort of wriggle and and you know not be so comfortable with that and that's okay as well um it's just nice to know that people are out there that are, are closet pantheists and they don't have to have the name oh, thanks bernie thanks karen now um nathan asked a question in the chat which pantheism facebook group are you in karen uh, he says i can see quite a few in the search results. Now, I've put in the link to the Australian uh, Scientific Pantheist, but you might like to say something about that, Karen. The, the funny thing about being a pantheist is that we're, we're a bit of a disparate, like we're, we're very individuals. Um, and so it's, it's not really a high activity website um, because you'll find with pantheists is that it's just, it's the way that we live. Um, which means that we just have our own ways of being in nature, respecting nature, uh, trying to live lightly on the earth. And so we just go about our business doing that. Um, and we don't necessarily do a lot of uh, conversing and chatting um, across the likes of Zoom and so forth, um, which is a little bit uh, sad, actually. Um, so it's not, it doesn't have a great deal of traffic, um, but every now and then someone will, you know, pop something on there that, that relates to um, something about, you know, a lot of the time it'll be to do with um, some sort of conservation efforts or something really sort of amazing about nature. So some amazing fact uh, with a with a um, nature aspect to it, so that those those are the things that gets uh, get posted on there. But um, we are pretty scattered, and like I say, I'm the only one self-confessed pantheist in, in Wollongong. There's a little hub sort of around Queensland. There's there's perhaps a few down in Melbourne that are on the website, but um, we're sort of sprinkled around fairly sparsely. Oh, thanks for that question, Nathan. Thanks, uh, Karen. Paul, you have a question. Uh, yes, uh, I, I was. I think you may have started to answer the question I had in mind because I was going to ask you about how one actually practices patheism and uh, ism rather. And um, 
you know, in your introduction, you, you described, if you like, your belief rather than what you actually one, what, how one actually practices it. And uh, so maybe you can expand on that a little more. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Um, and I think it's interesting. I've, I'm trying to do justice to being here because it's an absolute honour. But it really depends on who you talk to um, because we're all so different in what we do. Um, there are no strict ceremonies. There's no strict traditions. There's no uh, particular days. There's, there's nothing to prescribe to us how we should be practising um, pantheism. So what you'll find is um, there's a general underlying current of, as I said, we may practice it in the in the products that we choose and in the way we live. Um, so we might work very hard to um, tend to our garden so that, you know, there's, a, there's probably a lot of pantheists that are permaculture um, people. There's probably a lot of uh, pantheists that are environmentalists. And um, so we do everything we can to live lightly. As far as celebrations, again, that's an, it's an interesting one, the traditions and celebrations and how we practice it, because for some of us, we will go into the ocean or we'll go into the bush and just walk and be with be at one with it and sit on a rock and overlook a vast you know plane and just be in awe of that um others like i said you know with my parents um they will gather people and actually have a number of of you know the, the solstice and so they do uh, little traditional things like you might tie um and they're, they're embedded in, in old uh, pagan ways but tie a ribbon on um, a tree uh, to acknowledge a, a loved one that's passed. And there's um, speeches that you may make and um, uh, just little traditions like that that you may do. So you can do that as well. Um, but most of us, are, we, we find our own ways. We become involved in groups that are fighting for um, environmental um, protection. We are often involved in uh, fighting for uh, human rights and human justice because it, it, it aligns with, with, you know, so it's actually depends on which pantheist, who you talk to as to how they practice and how they find a way of, of living um, in the pantheist way. Um, but it will have that common thread of um, living lightly on the earth um, revering in some way nature, however you do that. So for me, I go um, at dawn or just before dawn, I go to the beach and I walk on the beach and I wait for the sun to rise over the rocks. And that is how I connect. One way I connect as a pantheist and revere um, the beauty. So it, it really depends on who you are, where you live, what kind of lifestyle you lead as to how you will practice your pantheist ways, your philosophy, your religion. So, so maybe um, maybe it, it might be worth thinking then about what you're not or what you don't do rather Absolutely. than- Absolutely. And that's- Because I, I was thinking then, for example, the, the relationship you would have, if you like, with the conventional idea of God, does that sort of help to give you a point of reference? It's just really interesting because in um, actually the book, Paul mentions that sometimes it's easier to explain to people what we're not. Um, and so um, we, it, it, you could probably ask a, a number of questions about, and I would say, no, we don't, or I don't, we don't do that, or we don't think that. Um, so as far as a, as a, um, all-powerful God, um, one that, that, that may judge us or um, uh, we're not guided by um, a Bible, um, we're not guided by any sort of doctrine or, um, you know, Ten Commandments, anything like that. What you will find with pantheists is that they are largely driven by um, a very deep-seated belief that we have to look after nature because it, it it's so important and we revere it so much. And the thing is that if we don't look after it, we are um, in effect 
killing ourselves and everything with us because we're all interconnected. So, so it's um, values driven based, in, based it, on those. Very, yeah, values driven, absolutely. But I think um, one of the things is that the experience of awe and the experience of wonder and a, and a, and a very sort of deep, deep respect for um, moments in in nature. So what you'll find with pantheists is it, they may see a bee collecting its pollen. And in that moment, that deep reverence and awe of how nature works and the intricacies, um, you might look up at the stars and, you know, happen to see a, a comment or whatever and just be in awe and the humbleness that you feel. So I think there's a feeling, there's a deep feeling that pantheists have um, when they connect or they note the world around them, that natural world around them that drives that. So it is values, but it also is a very much a, a, a feeling, a, a deep sort of feeling that, that comes from what we see in nature. Thank you. Um, thanks, Paul. Uh, thanks, Karen. And before we go to John, that raises in me the thought that pantheists are quite different to someone who values the environment for purely instrumental reasons. Like they say, we've got to look after the environment because A, if we don't do anything about global warming and uh, buggering up the atmosphere, then we're all going to die. And B, if we don't conserve resources, stop cutting <coughs> down trees, destroying natural habitats, we're going to pollute ourselves um, to death and run out of resources. So someone who values looking after the environment for purely those self-interested reasons is quite different to a pantheist, I take it, who values nature, sees sees value in nature for itself, not just because of its value to human beings. I think that that's a good pickup, um, Les, because you absolutely we support, you know, the reasons that you've just pointed out, but our... The driving force is actually that humans are only one species. We don't put ourselves above any other living species and that nature has its own intrinsic worth, that it that it's beyond and we wouldn't have without it. We're only a very small part of it. So I guess driven to take care of it where we can uh, not because of what it can give us and provide us, but because it requires our deep respect of its own. Oh, great. Uh, John, you have a question. Yes. Uh, my question is, I'm just wondering how the following three points that I want to bring up relate to your pantheism. The first is uh, I'm a member of Sophia, which is the Don Cupid group, uh, Sea of Faith, uh, although there's not a lot of faith in it, <clears throat> but they uh, stressed panentheism, panentheism, and, and they uh, then uh, move on to seeing that in naturalistic terms as part of nature, uh, and it's incorporating everything within nature. That's the first aspect. The second is, uh, I'm very interested in uh, the history of religions in USA, and uh, it's very easy to see that, uh, you know, from the American Revolution, 1776, the God there was the God, the capital G God in a circle or a triangle, but that was uh, very much the deist God. And that is in itself was a sort of a pantheism um, uh, of uh, equating the deity with the functioning of the uh, natural universe. But earlier you had the other tradition of God, which was the Pilgrim Fathers who came in 1620. And there they had the fully blown uh, Christian triune God, the supernatural being, the prayers, um, a theistic um, God. And then, of course, that has led to the, today's ritualistic biblical fundamentalism, which um, authorizes their claims to infallibility. Uh, so you've got these three, three streams uh, of God talk. Uh, and I'm just, as I said, I'm just wondering how you see them relating uh, to your pantheism. Um, only in as much as the the man that first gave pantheist its name, not not that they he created pantheism, but he actually just gave it the name in 17. <laughs> um, that in that tradition, yes, they he he used the word God um, a lot um, in respect to nature. 
Um, and even prior to that, there was a lot of, uh, of talk around God. There has been a shift from those times and also in respect to the fact that um, when you go back far enough, it was actually very risky to hold views that there was no actual uh, supreme being and that the universe itself was um, on par with, with a, a personified God. Um, so when people were actually able to express those views more and move further away from an all-powerful, all-seeing God, the word God has diminished, I guess, in its and how may pantheists may use the word God. And in fact, I know I probably steer clear of using the word God, although if you look at some of the, if you were to look up pantheism in, in some of the um, dictionaries, God is mentioned. Um, so all nature is God, God is nature. Um, but I think really when it, when it boils down to it, pantheists, pantheists do not, believe in a supreme being we don't believe in an all-seeing all-powerful God so when we say God what we're referring to is is the universe is deep reverence and and the highest uh being if you like but it's not a it's not a sentient being it's not uh uh all-powerful all-seeing and it doesn't give a stuff about humans um it just exists because of the way that the nature of of atoms and so forth so i guess pantheism in its modern terms is not really referring to it yeah it doesn't generally use the word god um much um because of that i guess tendency for people when you hear god to have that very uh narrow view of what we might mean by that um and and pantheists don't it's not it's not part of what we how we view the world but yeah i'm just wondering about the context of the uh, motto that the usa introduced in the 1950s apparently in god we trust now obviously you know the the people who have personified god and praying to him every night they'll say that's the god that's meant and uh, of course i think it came out of the deistic tradition actually uh, as uh, as more pantheistic, so mm. I'm just wondering if you've got any comment on uh, how pantheists would deal with that. It's a very commonly used uh, phrase now in America: "In God we trust." It sounds all very pious, but you know it's very confusing. <laughs> well, I think I'm I'm lucky because I don't live in America, and 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 um, so there's not a lot. You know, in Australia and New Zealand, um, much more secular. Um, and so I'm not, I, I don't have to sort of feel terribly challenged. Um, but if, uh, when push comes to shove and I'm in a position where um, I'm asked to pray or um, I'm in a position where, you know, they're, they're, I, I just replace, you know, God with nature in my head, universe, um, Gaia, whatever you want to call it. And that's how I understand it. So I don't feel too... Uh, conflicted, if you like, because that that is who I I revere is um, is the universe uh, on on the same level, I guess, as somebody that believes in a in a all powerful being. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, Janet's got a question in chat. Um, she asks, Karen, would you say that indigenous peoples are pantheists? Um, I would never give uh, anyone the label, um, and I don't think they'd thank me for it either. But I. What I would say is, and this is the beauty of, of um, pantheism, actually, is that you can be a pantheist in many other things. Um, it doesn't necessarily preclude, but I would say that not really. Um, it depends on what which Indigenous population you're talking about, but um, certainly the different nations around Australia, um, they have their own view of, I guess, God's, spirits with that that are held within uh animals and so forth so there are definitely views that align with pantheism and there is a lot of synergy but but they wouldn't be necessarily considered pantheists because they may still hold that there are um there's a spiritual element or there is a higher being element that's not that's not the universe, but a higher being element. So I I couldn't 
talk on behalf of any Indigenous community, but I would say that there is definite synergy um, because they have a reverence for nature. Doesn't necessarily, the way that they revere it isn't necessarily the same as a pantheist, but there is definite reverence and um, there is definite uh, synergy around how it guides them and how they live their lives and how they walk on the earth and their connection to earth. So there are definite parallels, but probably not, it's not interchangeable or, yeah. Karen, if I can ask a question, I'm wondering whether you make a, dis a distinction between the moral value of non-sentient parts of the environment, rivers, beautiful rivers, beautiful mountains, and sentient creatures that have the capacity to feel pain and suffering. So, for example, I'm trying to think of a practical example where you have to choose one or the other, and I can't think of any that it's a really good example. Theoretically, how would you weigh the value of, say, a beautiful mountain compared with a bunch of squirrels? We know squirrels are sentient. Um, is, there a, is there a moral gradation? Is there a moral gradation? So I like it's really um, I love this because you're really pushing me uh, to think about these things. Um, I suspect in a pantheist view, it would probably be guided by um, what does the least amount of harm or what upholds the ecology um, of an area the most. Uh, so if if something had to be damaged, um, what could what could Mother Nature? What could nature withstand? Um, and what could like what would give serious damage um, and the implications that would ripple out from that because it's really about trying to protect as much of nature as is possible um, and keep the balance the ecosystem um, healthy so probably the the least amount of damage just to tease that out a bit more um, in in contemporary moral philosophy there's a new breed of moral philosophers who think that parts of the environment, and I'm thinking specifically of mountains and rivers, have intrinsic moral value, whereas one of the dominant moral traditions before that, utilitarianism, only saw intrinsic value in uh, creatures that had sentience, who had the capacity to feel pain and suffering. So this is, a, this is really being battled out in... Um, fought over in contemporary moral philosophy. Do mountains and rivers have intrinsic value in themselves, independently of their impacts on sentient creatures like the squirrels who appreciate them and human beings who appreciate mountains and rivers? I think like, if I'm giving an answer, it's really probably from me and not from, from a pantheist point of view. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. we're getting into a space where there would be differences amongst pantheists probably um, as to how we would how we would answer um, and it would probably take a little bit of of discussion as well um, if you chucked a whole heap of pantheists together and asked them that question mm -hmm. what, what we would come out with um, and it's a tricky one because I think that most pantheists would would ultimately say that everything um, has intrinsic value whether they're sentient or not, um, because it's all part of the universe and it's been created by um, the forces of, of physics and nature and, you know, all of those things. Um, and so everything has a right to be as it is. Mm. But beyond that, I'd, yeah, I'd be speaking as Karen, not as a pantheist, mm. I have a feeling. Mm. No, thanks, Karen. Dirk, you have a question. Thank you for your presentation, Karen. But among the sentient beings, uh, we spoke uh, earlier about squirrels, which don't belong in Australia. What distinction can be made amongst the native animals and the introduced ferals? I'm thinking, for instance, of the destruction that's happening to a lot of the native animals in the Kosciuszko high country by the feral horses. I'm thinking of the damage that's recently been highlighted by the deer in the Tasmanian wilderness areas, which are some of the most highly uh, respected places from an ecological point of view, and they meet five out of the criteria for World Heritage Listing, which is one of the highest. So that, that's an interesting one to look at. 
Yeah, I think um, it, it goes like, I mean, that's human playing God in a way, isn't it? Um, the way that we've introduced things that weren't supposed to be where they are and now they're causing problems. And I think um, as a pantheist, you'd probably be looking at if we're stuffing things up by introducing things like cane toads or deers or uh, in New Zealand's it's actually possums and, and stoats and things like that. And again, this is probably tipping over into Karen's view, not necessarily all pantheist views, because we're not, we don't have a very tightly guided way of viewing things, but um, to protect the natural balance of an ecosystem, and we've gone and introduced a, a creature, a, a, you know, animal that is actually damaging that ecosystem, then we would be trying to, as much as possible, um, remove those animals from that, that ecosystem. Um, and we would be trying to do it as environmentally friendly and with as least pain to those animals as possible. You know, I mean, that doesn't sit nicely, but it's a human-made problem. And if it's creating issues uh, in the balance of an ecosystem, and we recognise that ecosystems are, again, part of this awe-inspiring um, existence, um, and they are self-perpetuating except for when we come whopping in and um, decide that we need to introduce rabbits or whatever, um, that we need to probably look after the health of the ecosystem and remove whatever has been introduced because of humans in the most uh, painless way as possible. Thank you. I agree with you. Karen, it sounds like the pantheist movement is not, is not really big on ritual and, and even celebration. I'm interested in what you do for the solstice. Can you talk a little bit more about your ceremony around the, the solstice and what you do there? Yeah, you've caught me on the hop there because my parents are the ones that organised that yeah. um, and they're in New Zealand, so I've missed a lot um, and I've only sort of been able to be there on, on occasion. And so my, my knowledge of it is... Um, actually pretty sketchy and they've consulted uh, guidance around what we know are old I'd say pagan traditions but that that's possibly misleading as well because they're really sort of um, traditions that recognize the change of seasons but also important uh, important sort of aspects of living and so for instance Halloween falls on the same, um, it, it falls around uh, one of the, the solstice um, uh, changes, the season changes, it's Sawin, um, which is actually, no, it's been taken over as Halloween, but it's the, the day of the dead, it's when we recognise those that have gone before us um, and people that were important to us. And so, um, again, that's that's an opportunity um, that pantheists, um, you know, not all of us, but it's it's one of those place times where we would happily celebrate and incorporate um, tradition that might actually come from even um, places like Mexico where they have the Day of the Dead or um, Celtic traditions where they also had their um, Day of the Dead to honour those that have passed before us and really because it's so open you can you can take what you like and you can create your own ways of honoring it, it's really very open now I think for some people that's way too open and they they wouldn't find that helpful and they wouldn't find that useful um, for others who don't like to be told what to do and how to do it um, it's 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 nice because you can create it how you want it and you can decide well this is important or this is something that I want to celebrate more um, such as the change of the seasons or when you're in the middle of winter and recognizing what that means and what's going on um, on our side of the earth and um, really symbolically what does that mean is it a time to stop and reflect and to honor those that have passed is it to a time to look forward so we we can look at things like that we can make a decision about how we want to celebrate um, and like I say we can pick up from traditions that have gone be before us that are related to nature and related to life and symbolic in that way and we weave it in however we wish to weave it in so it is, it is pretty open and I can't be more specific 
than that. Um, there are traditions like you can bring something uh, with you that you no longer use um, and everyone brings something and passes it on. So everyone takes away something that they, and there's nice little traditions like that that you can incorporate, which I know that my parents did on those solstice occasions. I imagine that most pantheists are on the left side of the political spectrum, especially towards the Greens type parties. Are many of them politically active? Yeah, I think you will find, and again, because there's only a small bunch of people that actually know that pantheists exist and then are, you know, align themselves with that. Whereas there's probably a whole lot of people running around that have pan pantheist views or are pantheists but don't sit under that label. And um, mm -hmm. you will find a lot of them, and obviously in the Greens movement. And, and it, I, it goes back to some of the points we've been speaking about, about the fact that nature has its own intrinsic value. It's not there for us to make money out of, um, and it's not there... We don't, we don't necessarily put humans above all other living beings. So we're not privileged in that respect. So what we do, we need to consider what impact it has on every other living being as well. And you're not really going to find that approach probably in, in liberal policies because that's not what underpins their, their policies. So you are going to find that um, pantheists are more of the left um, mm. about because it's more about very very sort of grounded in uh, equality fairness and uh, taking care of one another it's about community and it's including other living beings in that and trying to live in a very what's the word it's a very balanced way so that you're living in harmony with the environment um, so it's a, again it's that way of living so pantheists again it's lovely to have traditions. I wish we had more celebrations. We can do that. But it's actually really the way that you live on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And you will find us left of centre. Okay. I know zoos have become much more humane in the last, <laughs> what, couple of decades, more <laughs> natural environments for their caged animals. So mm -hmm. given that they have improved probably quite dramatically, a lot of the zoos around the world, what's your view on zoos? Should they be in, in principle phased out altogether or is there still a place for zoos you think Karen? Yeah, there, there actually is given the impact of humans on the environment because uh, zoos frequently run breeding programs and um, they they try to support genetic um, continuation of certain lines which if they weren't there would possibly mm. not exist and the other thing is that it can bring the wonder of nature to people that may not see it otherwise and um, when you take a, a child or someone that's just not you know, used to going to zoos or, um, again, it can create awe and wonder in these creatures that you are seeing and um, the magnificence and the truly just amazing array of human, uh, not human, um, of, of life, yeah. So um, zoos have a place, but thank goodness for a large part, they're becoming far more what should we say, more um, humane in the way that they do that. But it's it's still a tricky one because, you know, lions, a lot of, a lot of creatures have huge areas in which they would normally roam. And it's very hard to emulate that. So the way that we do it uh, is just as important as, as really whether they existed. Like if you're going to have zoos, then make sure that they, they serve the purpose of creating more respect for humans and our fellow creatures and also for trying to save those that that we are you know decimating um, and trying to raise awareness so I, I unfortunately yes I think there is a place and there's always going to be while humans are living beyond our means. No thanks Karen. Yes Robert. I'm a pantheist but I wouldn't call myself one. I've been an active conservationist for probably a quarter of a century now been a vegetarian for half a century and caring for the natural world and ecosystems and so forth is really, really important to me. But one of the fundamental problems and dilemmas that I'm very, very conscious of is the problem of harmlessness towards other creatures 
but at the same time, intense harm towards creatures that do damage, like the cane toad rabbit sort of issue. Um, it's, a, it's a huge con um, conflict between the vegetarian in me and the conservationist in me. And the conclusion I've come to is the conservationist wins. And if that involves killing horses in the high country, and involves killing cane toads and involves killing rabbits en masse, then so be it. Because they do such immense amounts of damage. Mm. So even though I feel enormous amounts of sympathy for my fellow creatures, um, I feel zero sympathy for some of them because they're just very, very damaging. Mm. The other issue, of course, is um, the dichotomy between the herbivores and the carnivores. And carnivores kill herbivores. And I just, I just don't see a problem in that, except I don't want to be one. Absolutely, yeah. I, it's an interesting, because I think you'll find a higher percent, like not, not all pantheists are vegetarian. Um, and in actual fact, you'd think that we would all be vegans, really, um, when it comes down to it. But um, And it is actually, uh, even Paul addresses it in, in his book about that. And yeah, I, I, that's part of the reason why I'm vegetarian and why I've been vegetarian for quite some time and with uh, vegan uh, leanings because of that idea of trying to reduce the suffering of other living beings. But again, if those other living beings are decimating a natural habitat in which they were never supposed to be, then I have to go with, we need to remove them as, as painlessly as possible. So, um, and I think that most, most pantheists would probably um, sit with that view as well, because the ultimately it's about the, the greater good of the environment. And if a, if an animal is there only because of us, then we probably need to re rectify that that problem and stop doing it. Like we keep repeating, keep repeating these problems. But yeah, so I would agree with that. That's that's probably where a lot of pantheists would sit. Yeah, the, the other the other really fundamental issue which which concerns me a very great deal is that we cause immense harm just by being alive. Yes. I, have, I, I have to eat. And the stuff I eat, because being a vegetarian, is all plant matter, and it's grown on farms where the plants are constantly under threat from predatory animals that want to eat them, especially insects, and they have to be destroyed so that I can eat. So even though I try to be a cause of harmlessness, I can't be. It's just impossible. I think um, part of, I guess, the pantheist would view would be to a degree is that um, there is a cycle of life. There are um, omnivores, carnivores, and you know um, herbivores. And that in itself is just part of the normal natural world. The way that we do it though, that is departing from the natural world. So when we go into factory farming and when we are using pesticides and um, monocrops and things like that, that's when I think you'll find that pantheists diverge and they won't go there because that's where it becomes disrupting and disrespectful to to the earth so if you're looking at eating animals you do it in a respectful way that minimizes suffering that doesn't uh, harm the land and so you're trying to do it in a way that that is not going to to disrespect or um, to disrupt the natural environment so there's there will be pantheists that sit there and then there'll be pantheists that come all the way over to the veganism, but they'll sit somewhere in that view of you do the minute most minimal amount of harm and suffering as possible. Yep, I'm totally on your side there. Though I, I, I do think the underlying problem is the enormous population explosion of humans in the last couple of centuries. And that itself is immensely harmful. Yeah. So the only real solution is to get rid of most of us. And that's yeah. a rather difficult position to take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's tricky. But there, there's no denying that um, that humans are a bit of a scourge. And if there were more pantheists in the world, um, there'd be more world peace and everyone would be happier. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Good luck. Because we're all peace-loving and nurturing kind of people. Thanks, Robert. I was wondering if there's anything at all like the Ten Commandments, any list of do's or don'ts. Great question, David. No. Pantheists don't like that. We don't like to be dictated to. <laughs> um, I think what you'll find, what guides us, um, and someone actually I think mentioned deep ecology, um, and that sits alongside 
pantheism quite nicely um, and it's really sort of guided by again you know that idea of doing the least harm as possible to our environment and to other living beings so that would be humans as well as as other creatures um, and paying deep respect to nature and how we live so once you've got that as your as your basis it actually does guide a lot about how you live your life. It is a it is a work in progress. I think that most pantheists would would all agree that we have our own struggles. So you know, I I use too much plastic, and I'm well aware of the damage that that's doing. So I'm trying to reduce that, but it's my own little struggle. Yeah. So we're all we're all on that journey, but that fundamentally is our 10 commandments is that once you once you believe that you are only one small part of a very larger ecosystem that's much much grander than what you are but that your life depends on the health of nature and the environment that's going to guide how you live on a daily basis and how you deal with other people around you and and um, other living beings because if if the community is unwell, if there are people that are living below the poverty line, um, if, if there are these types of things going on, then you can't possibly live much of a happy life, really. So once you've you've got that as your basis, that's how it guides you. Mm. And you find your own way and you do your best that you can do. Thank you, David. Uh, it's John now and then Janet. Now, thank you for... Uh, opportunity. Uh, you've raised two issues that concern pantheism. One is the zoos that have animals in cages, uh, and it looks like we will always have animals in cages because uh, you know people will want to visit zoos with their children. Um, but I'm just wondering if, in fact, there's an argument that well they're getting well fed, and if they're in the uh, out in the open, you know, in the open country. Most of their day, they're, they're going around uh, looking for things to hunt and to kill and, and uh, to bring back to their young children if they've got young uh, cubs or whatever. So I'm just wondering if, uh, if you can argue that, well, eventually uh, these animals will be happy to live in a cage. Although when I was a kid and went to the zoo, I felt they were all in prison. It just seemed, you know, really sad that they are just going up and down uh, along the, the fence as, as if they were in prison. I'm just wondering with your thought, and then the second thing, the population uh, explosion was mentioned. Um, Robert is very, you know, very strong on, on this issue. <clears throat> I heard a talk on the ABC that the resources were in a balance with the world's population back in 1920. Since then, uh, there have been too many people for the resources. Now we're 100 years later, so I, I've always felt that that's, uh, you know, that's uh, quite a wise insight. And, and we can't, shouldn't wonder, as Robert does, why we've got so much population here and that, that may be the issue we should be addressing. So there's just two points that I'm making. Yeah, um, so zoos can be done very badly and very appallingly and traditionally they were done very badly and appallingly and it was cruelty. Um, I think that there are still many zoos like that, which is just appalling and, and it breaks my heart when I think about some, some zoos that exist out there. When you've got a country with funding enough to provide appropriately for animals that are in captivity, um, then I think it is quite possible that animals can live quite happily, but some animals will be more easier for that to do than, than others, clearly, because of the nature of that animal. So whether they just have a very wide roaming um, area that we can't emulate or whether um, there's other reasons. I mean, I, I myself remember polar bears in Auckland going mad because they were hot and they had a concrete enclosure. It was just awful. But so again, you know, if zoos are done very well and they are done because now we've got animal, animal behaviourists, we've got zoologists that, that understand what these animals need it's done a lot better but uh you know as as always there's there are examples which are appalling so 
there are if you do it well then it's least amount of harm type thing um the population explosion and yes oh, i don't like calling it the western world but those of us that are that are in wealthy nations and even then there are people that live in wealthy nations that are living below the poverty line so i'm talking about those that um, have the wealth in wealthy nations um, consume far more than what we need and we consume far more than the world can um, maintain and so we will outstrip the resources that the earth has but pantheists would argue that what drives us is not humanity's existence but for the fact that uh, we're destroying something pretty amazing like there's nothing else that we know of in the universe quite like this and um, so that in itself um, is reason why we should be changing our ways. Very complex issue, though, the, the human population issue. Thanks, John. Thanks, uh, Karen. Now, Janet, would you like to say your question? Hello. I'm thinking perhaps going back in another direction. Earlier, somebody asked about you might be able to explain what you are by saying what you're not. And I'm wondering if you could take that approach in explaining why you're the scientific side of pantheism and not the spiritual side. What's the difference? Mm. Yeah, good question, Janet. So for me personally, I don't, I don't really sort of um, sense a spiritual um, essence in living beings. So I don't have a sense of um, a spiritual nature in a tree and a squirrel or emu. I just see them as other sentient beings like myself. Um, and I don't necessarily feel like there is some uh, something I can't put my finger on that exists that connects us um, in a spiritual sense where some pantheists would, would that they would see uh, a more of a spiritual side to life and and living beings and um, edge more towards uh, something beyond what science can um, explain. Um, whereas for me, anything that science hasn't explained is because we can't yet, because we don't have our understanding wrapped around it. Um, so I, I just sort of sit with a deep reverence for other living beings as much as my own, but not necessarily anything esoteric, spiritual, anything like that. Um, they exist as atoms and cells, and uh, when they die, those atoms and cells that came together to create that, they it goes back into the soil and becomes something else. So I believe that uh, some of my cells are dinosaurs, worse dinosaurs at some point, and many other things, um, because we just, those matter gets recycled. So that's how I sit as a, as a pantheist, a scientific pantheist, um, which would probably differ to some other pantheists. Thanks, Janice. Now, YJ, would you like to say your questions or would you like me to read them out? Please read. Intrinsic meaning in quotation marks, intrinsic meaning was mentioned earlier. Do pantheists mean in the context of humans as meaning-making creatures or something metaphysical like the religious notion of, say, a soul? I think what we mean is, actually, I don't know about intrinsic meaning, intrinsic worth. That, that's how I see other living beings and, and all of nature as having intrinsic worth. Um, and I would possibly use that with intrinsic meaning, like interchangeably, so that their worth and the, the meaning they have within this world is the same as what I have um, and any other human. So we all have our own um, intrinsic worth in this universe, in this ecosystem. So the second question is, in cultures where ancestral veneration is highly valued, What's a pantheist attitude towards it? Ancestral veneration. It depends what scope you mean with that. So when we venerate our ancestors, I think, again, if I was to tell you it's probably going to be a Karen 
view, not necessarily a pantheist view, because we're not all going to hold the same value of ancestry. And so it's, that's a tricky one because we're, we don't necessarily have, again, like, uh, the, you know, David questioned about the Ten Commandments or, or other um, documents that guide us in, in what we should be thinking and how we should be venerating certain parts of, of our life and past and so forth. So it actually comes probably down to us as individuals about how much we would place um, value on um, our ancestors and what they've handed down through the generations. Um, I think most of us would sort of recognise the wisdom that gets handed down and trying to build on the wisdom that is passed down through the generations and how people lived prior to us. But beyond that, I think I would actually be talking as Karen, not as, as, a, as a pantheist, you know, because there is no one way of, of looking at, at that question because pantheists, it, it, do, it doesn't ring fence you in the way that you would perceive that. Oh, thanks, YJ, for that second question. And thanks, um, thanks Karen. Uh, now, Niambo, you have a question. Basically, one thing that's always kind of intrigued me a bit about pantheism is mostly how do they kind of, you know, basically conceive of God, you know, in regards to basically being just being like the universe. Like, you know, are there, let's say, different branches of pantheism that conceive of God differently in that context? Yeah, so... We touched on that earlier, um, and I guess with scientific pantheists, um, we most of us will tend to steer clear of using the word God because it that it, it has a particular perception of what that is, and usually it's a supreme being that's all knowing or seeing. Um, it, it holds judgment, um, and scientific pantheists do not have that. We don't we don't see that as as um, is existing. So when we talk about God as the universe, um, really, it's saying that the universe is the is the only thing that exists worthy of deep reverence, um, because it is awe inspiring, because it is all encompassing, and we are just one small part of that very big vastness. That's how we view God, if you like. Or maybe if there's one thing we could think of is that, you know, another pantheistic way I thought of conceiving the universe is, you know, the idea is basically that the universe is basically God and that humans and, you know, everything in the universe are just different parts of God, of how God manifests. You could, you could say that. And, and if, if that's, that's where, and in fact, it probably links back to what Janet was saying, that's moving into um, your more spiritual pantheism mm -hmm. as a likening uh, a God as as the universe so and basically my idea is that basically i would like to kind of envision pretty much all all creatures that are capable of at least human level if not greater sentience and even you know creatures like chimpanzees are basically like you could say the conscious and you know cultural and you could say you know spiritual and you know psychological manifestations of you know god as the whole universe <laughs> yeah i would as a scientific pantheist i would move away from that because I, I am more of the, the um, view that uh, each living being is part of the universe. We exist as individuals, um, as, a, as a, an ecosystem. We are connected by the way that we breathe air and we take in food or whatever, um, but not necessarily beyond that. Thanks, Niambo. Okay, we'll go to um, YJ's third question and to you, Karen, and that is death and the pantheists, your mm. thoughts on it. Mm. And I think I just touched on it uh, very briefly just then. So a scientific pantheist will generally believe that um, on death, all the cells that created who we were go back into the earth, depending on, like, I mean, if you're cremated, then, then the ashes go back into the earth. So um, the cells that create us are just simply returned back into nature and are dispersed and become other things. So that's, uh, and, and I think for a lot of people that, that sounds really brutal, but most pantheists sit quite comfortably in that um, and know that we are, we become compost to create further life and um, and that's fine with us um, being part of the cycle of life. Uh, thanks, YJ. Thanks, Karen. Okay, um, we'll go to Dirk. 
Thanks. What I'd like to come back to is the use of theism in the word pantheism. The way that you've explained it from a scientific pantheistic point of view, there is very little of the theism left. Yeah, and that's because pantheism as a word was created in 1705, which was still very much embedded in the, in the sense of um, God being nature and nature being God. So um, scientific pantheism is, is a more modern title for moving away from the, the interlink with God. So you can be a pantheist and actually uh, Nambo is talking about that as, you know, like God being everything and everything being God. And that still exists as a pantheist, but a scientific pantheist has moved away from that. So we still have the word pantheism. And it's interesting because it could have been called anything, but that's what uh, John, whatever his name is, in 1705 called it. And, and so that's, that's what we have. And it's interesting because I think Les asked me when, when we first had the chat before I came here about that. And, and I said, I don't tend to think about it. We could have been called squirrels and I would be fine with that title because it's not so much what's in that word. It's really what the underpinning beliefs are. So the underpinning beliefs aligned with what I believed and it just happened to have the title pantheist so I was like okay so that's what I am but I I haven't put too much stock in what that word actually means and how it's broken down because I just know that that's it just um, summarizes it gives a, a label to summarize my my perspective on life okay Thank you, Karen, for being so giving and open. And I think you've given us a real insight with the contrast and compare bit. How do we contrast pantheism with even other versions of pantheism mm. and, and, and other worldviews and, and ways in which it's similar to other worldviews as well? I think you've done a really terrific job and I think you've given us all a real insight into that. And you've been, as I said, very open and honest with your answers tonight. So all of us appreciate that. So uh, a big thanks to you. I think it's been a, a lovely opportunity. So um, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. You can download a recording of today's ex-religious support network session from the Rational Realm website. You can also download the other sessions in this series. Just go to rationalrealm.com and in the top menu bar, click on philosophy resources. I look forward to seeing you at our next Ask Me Any Question session.